Hello and welcome to The Powers That Be, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. Welcome. First, I'll be talking to Matt Bellany about what's really going down in Hollywood, the Morgan Wallen controversy at WME, and what being canceled really means, along with what Yellowstone's huge season premiere says about the future of cable TV. Then Tina Wynn comes by and we talk about the new Republican playbook of winning over the Trump voter without Trump and how Democrats can respond. These are the great sort of conversations you can only have with expert insider reporters who really know what's going on. I hope you enjoy The Powers That Be. All right, joining me now is Matt Bellany to talk about all things Hollywood, entertainment, and today, music. You have a story up on Puck, uh, Matt, this week about Morgan Wallen, who is a huge country star. Um, If you're listening to this and you're wondering, who is Morgan Wallen? You are probably an elite insider, the kind of person who listens to Puck and doesn't listen to mainstream country music. (laughs) All you have to do is look at the Billboard album chart because this guy has the number one album of 2021. He not only is a country star, he's a superstar. He's, you know, huge best-selling album. And before February, he was on track as like the next big thing in country music. When you go back to earlier in the year and, and look up his, his latest album, the one that came out this year called Dangerous, um, it was on the top of Billboard's U.S. charts for six straight weeks. Again, not country charts, all charts. And he, I think, was the first country star since Garth Brooks to be at the top of the charts for that many consecutive weeks. I think the first male artist since Drake to do it. I mean, he's a huge, huge country star. I'm not in that demo of Morgan Wallen fans, but you as a country music fan, tell us a little bit about his stylings. (laughs) So I don't necessarily listen to Morgan Wallen, but for you and the people that are listening, he's sort of that kind of, you know, mainstream radio, Nashville, bro, kind of rock, like a natural descendant of Florida, Georgia line, you know, Thomas. A Rhett, ridiculous sort of mullet. Great like, mullet. Like an all time <laughs> rid- ridiculous mullet, like aggressive mullet. Like you look at it, that's the only thing you see when you see this guy. Yeah. And he is from, uh, yeah, he has a, it's an unironic mullet too, I believe. Um, but he was on The Voice <laughs> back in 2014, 2015, I think. Didn't win The Voice, but sort of you know, came to people's attention and started putting out some albums. He's also, again, this is this is not the kind of like, well, to put this in context in country music, Jason Isbell, who is sort of a beloved songwriter, formerly uh, of Drive-By Truckers, has won multiple awards, brilliant country writer, singer. He has one of his best, biggest songs is called Cover Me Up. And Cover Me Up is sort of a slow jam. It has 47 million streams on Spotify. Morgan Wallen covered Cover Me Up and that version has like 200 million streams on Spotify. So, you know, the the indie rock, the indie country snobs like Love Jason Isbell, Morgan Wallen is not that, but his audience is massive. And he's in the news uh, more recently, um, yeah, specifically yeah. We should, we should talk yeah. about why we're talking about him. <laughs> yes, we should yes, talk we about should. him because in, in February... A, a video came out on TMZ where he was seen uh, out partying with his friends and he used the N-word and was subsequently dropped by his agency, William Morris Endeavor, along with others who suspended him, like his label, and um, he was taken off country airplay on the radio um, and you know went through this whole process where 
it was interesting because his agency didn't quite drop him. They essentially benched him. They said, we will help you rehab yourself. We'll educate you. We'll introduce you to the people that you should um, be talking to about race sensitivities and, you know, the basics of why you cannot use that word. Um, he is said to have done a lot of those things. He did an interview with Michael Strahan on Good Morning America in which he apologized. He then subsequently, it was reported by Rolling Stone, he did not follow up on a lot of the promises that he had made about atoning and working with African-American groups and donating to race-based and black causes. So he sort of quasi-apologized but didn't really do the work. And then this past week, it was revealed that his agency, while they said they were dropping him, they were quietly still working with him and his agent was booking a planned tour for 2022 that is probably going to be one of the biggest tours in country music and there was a little bit of an outcry over that ultimately what happened was his agency then decided that they were going to drop him officially the agent involved is now going to leave the company and we have an instance here where this is a canceled person who is going to be incredibly successful, unlike most people who are canceled. And it leads to some interesting cultural and financial issues. Yeah, no, I think this story is fascinating uh, because it's, it's bigger than country music for everyone that's listening. Sorry to derail this into a taxonomy of uh, country stars. But it raises questions about polite society and these companies, are they more worried about you know, offending their employees and the people they go to cocktail parties with versus the actual audiences. I actually would add as a, as an addendum to what you just said, you know, people claim to be canceled and aren't actually canceled at all. Uh, after, after Morgan Wallen was caught by TMZ using the N word, you know, whether it was response to that or not, his album took off even more. Yeah. That's what's interesting here. Yeah. The, the third thing, which we'll get into though, is like, who is cancelable and who isn't? I mean, Morgan Wallen, like his music, hate him, don't don't like his personality, like it. Like, he's talented. And people who have talent, you know, can find audiences even after being quote-unquote canceled. So there's a lot of, like, threads to pull from this story. But what's clear here is that his audience does not care about this at all. He, as you said, he became more popular after the scandal. He, in Nashville, is, you know, not suffering at all he's playing and he's you know out and his manager and agent are successful as well there's been no real repercussions for that and you could write you know you could talk a lot about the nashville music scene and why that's the case uh, but it just it in that world it's not a problem the problem is in the rest of the world especially these big companies like his agency, William Morris Endeavor, and these other companies like Apple Music that has his music, Live Nation, which is planning to promote his tour. All of these other companies either care very much about the issues that caused him to be canceled in the first place, or have to pretend to care because they want to be in business with artists and other stakeholders that do care very much about these issues. And that's what's interesting here, because in most cases where someone screws up in the public forum, does something unacceptable, they become quote unquote canceled and they don't work. They do not have a career going forward. So there's really not any of these business issues. This is a guy who not only is still working, but if he had stayed with his talent agency, 
he would have made them probably tens of millions of dollars over the lifetime of that representation. And they are giving that up by cutting ties with him. And it's interesting that companies now are willing to do that when I don't think even five, 10 years ago, they would have been able, they would, they would have been willing to do that. I do think this is a dubious case of, of cancellation. I mean, after he used the N word, um, he like Sirius XM and iHeart and Spotify all removed his songs and playlists and imagery from their platforms briefly and then put it back on <laughs> like that's not actually being canceled. And all of these songs, at least on Spotify, which is what I'm looking at right now, you know, his top song has 400 million streams. I mean, this guy is going to be fine. But a question I had after reading your story and we'll get into these other topics, but is this agent who, you know, left WME with him as a client? I mean, is there going to be like a cottage industry around handling canceled clients and then like bringing them to new markets or sort of managing their reputations uh, after incidents like these? That's a good question. And first of all, I should say that he hasn't left yet as, as of this tape. And he, he is leaving and everyone knows he's leaving. Uh, the, the, the agent's name is Austin Neal, who is a young booking agent in Nashville. His father was a well-known agent. But he clearly is following his meal ticket out the door. He st you know, stumbled upon one of the biggest country music clients uh, working today. So it's worth it for him to leave. He clearly doesn't see any problem with the, it, this guy's behavior. But it gets to the it does bring up this question of whether there's a cottage industry. I don't think so. First of all, this is an odd situation. Most of the people who run afoul of the culture wars, you know, Kevin Spacey doesn't need a manager. He's not really working. Um, Brian Singer, the filmmaker, he's not Marilyn Manson. The, all these people, they don't need representation. They will not work again. The situation here is that there is someone who is very popular. And you could use the same analogy to someone like Dave Chappelle, who made what, you know, are pretty objective transphobic comments and not only kept his Netflix special, but could sell out a tour at the drop of a hat and has sold out tours and will continue to in the future. And people will work with him. I think the real issue here is, and I think all companies across corporate America are trying to figure this out, what can you do and what can you not do with certain people in order to run your business well, but also have a cultural climate at your company that your employees can feel good about and run your business in a way that other partners will want to do business with you. And I think it, in the entertainment context is fascinating because a lot of the platforms, the more you know, passive platforms for these artists, they are taking the position that we are platforms for everyone we're Netflix. We have a lot of different content from a lot of different people. Some of it might offend you. Some of it might be odious, but we're not going to take someone off the service because he offends people. Live Nation seems to be doing that. We don't know what they're ultimately going to do, but as of now, they are continuing to book the Morgan Wallen tour for 2022. And that's because Live Nation sees itself as a booking platform for everybody. And if they got into value judgments about Morgan Wallen, Who's to say they wouldn't book, you know, other controversial artists like, you know, Kanye West or the Chicks or people who have run afoul of different constituencies. So I think that's where corporate America has come. When the talent agency context, this is different. When you're an agent, you are that person's advocate. You have to stand up on a podium and say, I represent this person. 
And it's just a much different values calculus when you are doing that and other clients of the agency. I mean, look at William Morris Endeavor represents people like Michael B. Jordan, people that have very strong positions on issues of racism and probably wouldn't be thrilled if their agency was in the news every day for representing someone who said the N-word. That, you know, there's a reason why Mel Gibson is at a tiny, tiny agency now, not one of the majors, because he was essentially dropped by all the agencies because of the anti-Semitic comments that he made. But Mel Gibson works. That's the thing is people employ Mel Gibson, including studios, because they don't have to stand up next to him and say, I am this person's advocate. The agents do. Right. And so that, that brings us to a question, and we mentioned this briefly. What is the line between someone being actually canceled and sidelined from culture, sidelined from their industry, and someone who can make a comeback? And that comeback, by the way, doesn't necessarily need to be they're doing the same thing they were before. They could be on new platforms. They could find different audiences, whatever. But you use Kevin Spacey as, as a good example. I used to think that people would be fully canceled if they were talentless or replaceable. And so Mark Halperin is a good example. Like this political savant for a very long time in DC was busted during the height of the Me Too movement for being creepy and making advances on women that work for him, including several women that I know. And he hasn't really come back. He's on Newsmax, but he hasn't come back because he does a thing that hundreds, if not thousands of other people can do, which is offer surface level, savvy political analysis. We see that every day on Twitter. On the flip side, someone like Louis C.K. also did gross things, but is unquestionably like a talented comedian who can find an audience somewhere else. But Spacey's a good example. Spacey is talented, but there's still no marketplace for him to work anymore. So like, what's the line? Like, where is the line between someone like Morgan Wallen, who has an audience and can keep going, and someone like Mark Halperin, or even Al Franken, who can't really come back? I tend to look at this not necessarily as a talent question because, you know, talent is very subjective. And as I don't know Mark Halperin like you do, but as an outsider, sure, he's got talent at what he does. I don't, I think he is replaceable, but you know what? Kevin Spacey is replaceable too, as we have seen in multiple movies that replaced him. But I see this more as an audience question. And it's the question of whether the audience for this person's work, and that can be the constituents who consume it or the people who hire them, are the kind of people who care about these issues. And Mark Halpern is someone who the ultimate audience for his work might not care as much, but the people who would hire him, the people who work in media, and specifically political media, they have to care, or they do care, very much about these issues. And that's the same with a lot of these people that these actors or musicians would, uh, would want to work in. Kevin Spacey, in order to have a career back, He's going to need to get some studio or some television network or some streaming service to vouch for him and to back him and say, we will support you. He's done some work in some tiny indies or low budget things where people just like to have him, don't care. But in order to have a real career in Hollywood, you have to have people hire you at a significant level. And those are the people who care very much about this. They don't want the backlash. And that's where I think this is an audience issue, not necessarily a talent issue. On the subject of who can and who can't come back, I think it's also interesting because it's very fact specific. You look at each individual situation differently. And I know in the case of William Morris Endeavor, this agency that was considering whether to invite Morgan Wallen back, they have a committee 
they have a, an actual committee within the company that sits down. It's a cross section of, you know, eight to 10 people eight, across age, diversity, race and gender, you know, leaders, non-leaders, and they evaluate the facts. They say, okay, this is what he did. This is the thing that he has said, you know, he apologized for. He uh, has, you know, done, quote unquote, the work to try to come back. Is this enough? Are we going to let this guy be represented here? And in this case, they decided no. So just the fact that a company has this framework in place to make these kinds of difficult decisions shows how hard it is and how fact specific it is in every instance to determine who can be you know, welcomed back and who can't. Switching gears, we talk a lot about how traditional television is dead, dying or dead, the cable bundle is dead, etc. A show that is actually beloved uh, across the country called Yellowstone uh, just premiered for its third season, fourth season? Fourth season. Fourth season on a network called Paramount. Paramount? <laughs> just Paramount. The Paramount Network. I bet if you, if you held a gun to nine out of ten people and said, locate the Paramount Network, what is it? They couldn't do it. <laughs> yes, but my parents can. They love, they love Yellowstone. Um, and this is a huge hit. I mean, it's a huge, unmistakable hit on a network that I think not a lot of people watched until Yellowstone came along. Eight million people watched the debut of this show. It's, it's obviously... Live. They watched it the night of. You know, what does that say about the future of cable television? Well, it says that in order... First of all, it's somewhat hilarious to me because... Everyone has pronounced the traditional cable bundle dead, and we do see the numbers going down, down, down. But the fact of the matter is there's still tens of millions of people that primarily watch television through their cable bundle, not just sports, not just news, but they still flip around and they still watch this stuff. And, you know, for Yellowstone to generate an 8 million viewer debut on a network that people mostly can't find is pretty funny. It's especially funny because it's not streaming. The cable slash streaming deal for this show is the most bizarre thing in the world. It's a Paramount Network show produced by Paramount. It is then streamed not on Paramount Plus, which is the Paramount streaming service. It is streamed on Peacock, which is owned by NBC. And it is not streamed in season, quote unquote. That means you have to wait to watch it on Peacock later. So it's a very difficult thing to find. And I actually looked on Google just to see how funny it would be. I looked to see what happens if you Google, how do I watch Yellowstone? And there were just people going crazy Monday night trying to find this show. And still 8 million people found it. So it just shows like we all we talk about is Netflix and how everybody's watching things on Netflix and Disney Plus and all these services. But there's still a decent business in this, especially if you have something that is going to be a lure. I mean, they they are going to create three, four spinoff shows. They already have one coming called 1883 about like kind of a prequel. And these days, to keep people in the cable bundle, you got to lean into your franchises and just milk them for whatever you can do because that's what's happening with Walking Dead, with Real Housewives, with you know sports, obviously, with all of these things that are keeping people interested in the cable bundle, these networks just can't let them go. They need to franchise them. I think the the Morgan Wallen story and 
understanding how big his audience is, is, is useful when combined with this Yellowstone story, because it, it, it's a counterpoint to a lot of elites who think that taste, political opinions, entertainment revolve around them and what they're watching on premium streaming channels, what they're reading in the New York Times, what they're looking at on Twitter. You just have to remember that that's not the mainstream. The mainstream is Yellowstone. The mainstream is Morgan Wallen and Fox News. <laughs> no, you know who else you know who else it is? It's Joe Rogan, yeah. who this week famously gave Aaron Rodgers some fantastic medical advice on <laughs> his COVID diagnosis. And but that's another great example. Aaron Rodgers, the NFL star, got sort of quasi canceled this week for revealing that he was not vaccinated. He caught COVID and he sort of lied and misled people by saying he was immunized before. And, you know, as much as the mainstream media world had an absolute meltdown about this, myself included, you know, I'm a Cal grad. I love Aaron Rodgers. I was very disappointed in everything that went down this week with him. But there's all sorts of people who also get their medical advice from Joe Rogan. And, you know, I, I think in the real world, you know, outside of the elites, I think this is going down like, oh, OK, he's one of us. He's also skeptical. He's also, you know, my body, my choice or whatever they say about this. Like he will ultimately come out of this, I think, a hero in some certain in some circumstances. Yeah. I mean, like Joe, Joe Rogan's show reaches 11, 12 million people per episode. And it's a little apples to oranges to compare that stuff to conventional television ratings. But that that makes CNN and MSNBC viewership just look infinitesimal <laughs> by comparison. And and I also looked up, by the way, and you you know you would know this better than I do, the answer, but Succession is a show, you know, that wins awards, oh, that God. everyone in media, that everyone in media talks about, everyone's obsessed with it. You know, if you went to college and work in media politics, whatever, entertainment. You know, that show in its season three debut this year drew one point four million viewers that night that sunday night and obviously hbo accumulates more viewers you know as time passes and the show can gain more audience but if you compare 1.4 to 8 i mean more people are watching yellowstone far more than succession and yet succession is sort of dominates the elite conversation when it comes to television I only blame myself. I tweet about succession a lot. Um, <laughs> I do too. And, you know, I, I just, I mean, that that's always been the case with HBO. They're very good at getting into the headlines. The past CEO, Richard Plepler, would always like to say, I want to, I don't want to be in the entertainment section. I want to be in the opinion section because he knew that if he was what the elites were talking about in the opinion sections of the newspapers in New York and LA, then that meant that they were going to be in the larger quote unquote conversation. And that was good for the brand. And it was good for the brand for many, many years. Um, you know, HBO now has a streaming service that they want to appeal to everybody. So they're trying to do more shows like the gossip girl reboot and some of these other things that will uh, enter into the Yellowstone audience. But at the core, the HBO brand has always been these elite elite viewers. One more thing before I let you go on the topic of Aaron Rodgers, because you know Hollywood and you know Shalane Woodley's reputation in Hollywood, how much of Aaron Rodgers' perspective on vaccines <laughs> is based on his relationship with Shalane Woodley and her worldview? I know you can't really tell, but what is her worldview? That is an extremely loaded question, and uh, <laughs> I, I will give you my opinion. I will give you my opinion on this, but I want to couch it first by saying 
that I am not here to blame the fiance or shift any of the blame for this away from the guy who is the NFL MVP and has a responsibility with that platform to do responsible things and not lie to the media or his teammates. So I will say that first of all, but people in Hollywood who know Shailene Woodley, she has always been like this with homeopathic remedies. And, you know, she lived in the mountains and she was not someone, I don't want to call her anti-vax, but if she was anti-vax, it would not surprise a lot of people in Hollywood. I will just say that. So the fact that Aaron Rodgers is not vaccinated, I, I think people initially, at least when texting me, were like, oh my God, this is Shailene's influence. Don't know that for a fact, but I, it, it certainly played a role in my opinion. As of this taping, Shalane Willie actually posted something on Instagram <laughs> about the situation. I guess the Daily Mail posted some phony pictures this week claiming that Aaron Rodgers was seen walking around Los Angeles. Oh, I saw that. Yeah. yeah. And, and so anyway, Shalane Woodley uh, posted on Instagram, y'all need to calm the fuck down. This is straight up hilarious. News outlets still grasping at straws to disparage Aaron finding random men on the streets of LA and saying it's him. And then she says, I know Aaron's body very well. First off, his feet, and no offense to this random dude, are a lot bigger. Also, for those of us who know Aaron beyond the worlds of obsessed sport and shitty media, it's no secret he has the hairiest hands on the fucking planet. This oblivious homie clearly does not. Anyway. The hairiest hands? Yeah. Wow, okay. Maybe that's a secret. She also posted some kind of bizarre, like, quote the other day, like, that was kind of alluding to the fact that people were disparaging him. No disrespect to her, but... She's got opinions. She's got opinions on this Vax subject. I guarantee it. Let's not forget that in May, Aaron Rodgers and Shailene Woodley went on vacation in Hawaii with Miles Teller and his wife. And Miles Teller was outed by media as being anti-vax as well. So there may be something to that trip as a kind of quasi Delta variant super spreader event uh, earlier this year. Yeah. Yeah, the immunized but not vaccinated traveling together. All right, Matt, thanks so much. We'll see you next week. Thanks. Next up, I talked to Tina Wynn about whether Republicans have figured out how to win without Trump on the ballot. Thanks again for listening to The Powers That Be and for supporting Puck, our new company focused on the inside conversation, the plot that only the insiders know. This is the real story at the nexus of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood. Puck's content is great. Don't you love hearing my voice every week? Just a little. So when you subscribe to Puck, you're supporting our great team of journalists, empowering us to do the work that really matters, to grow our business and pave a path for a new media model. So check us out at puck.news. Welcome back to The Powers That Be. I'm talking now with Tina Nguyen, who is our expert in all things MAGA. Um, I don't know if that's good or bad, but you are an expert, I will say. I got the biggest brain. <laughs> <laughs> Tina, I want to talk to you about what happened last week on Election Day, not just in Virginia, but in New York, in Seattle, in Minnesota, in New Jersey, in races around the country. Republicans did very well, and they did very well without Donald Trump being on the ballot. During and after the Trump years, it became received wisdom that... You know, when Trump is on the ballot, 
He had unusual impacts on Republican turnout. His diehard base would show up in rural Republican counties where people didn't usually vote. And, you know, that sort of fell off in the 2018 midterms when he wasn't on the ballot and polls were more accurate and Democrats won. And then 2020 had its surprises. Joe Biden outperformed Democrats in a lot of places. But, you know, Republicans did pretty well, especially in frontline districts. You know, Glenn Youngkin won the Virginia governor's race last week in Virginia. And it's 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 likely, as Donald Trump said in a in a speech this week, that Glenn Youngkin probably wouldn't have won if Donald Trump had come in scorched earth and said, fuck this guy, I don't want him. But he did a pretty delicate dance. And one thing that shocked me in a piece I wrote this week talking to uh, a lot of people on the ground in Virginia was how big Republican turnout was. Democrats turned out more voters in the Virginia governor's race than they ever have in the history of the Commonwealth. But Republicans turned out even more. And Donald Trump wasn't anywhere near the ballot. He wasn't, you know, really at the forefront of voters' minds. And I talked to one Democrat from the House of Delegates outside of Richmond who told me in criticizing Terry McAuliffe's campaign, which is all Trump, 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 that with Trump deplatformed, with Trump, you know, not in office, there's a little bit of a disconnect when you talk to voters about Donald Trump. He's not really front of mind. So heading into the midterms next year, is it possible that Republicans have found a winning formula to run on culture issues and culture war stuff that Trump perfected, even if Donald Trump isn't the main event? I think so. The problem with the Republicans, though, is whether they run on those issues but find palatable enough candidates to push those issues forward or whether they're stuck with an entire crop of QAnon-loving MAGA candidates who have built groundwork for a midterm run at the expense of more mainstream, chiller candidates. I was reading this in The Dispatch, which amazing, amazing newsletter from these former National Review guys, and they pointed out that a lot of the high-profile candidates that Trump has endorsed and thus have those guys have received a lot of money. They've got really problematic histories, like Herschel Walker, who's in the race for Georgia. He's facing allegations from his ex-wife of like domestic abuse. Now, you can run on all the culture issues you want, but one of the things that Glenn Young had going for him was that he was really anodyne and boring and normal and didn't have allegations of, you know, domestic violence in his background or supporting any sort of conspiracy theories. Now can the Republicans suddenly recruit an entire crop of normies for 22? Who knows? There's a lot of groundwork they have to make up for that. And I don't know, unless they can really hustle their asses in gear, I don't know whether they can suddenly put a whole bunch of new people on the forefront of these ballots. Uh, One of the things I actually discovered in Tulsa, I was recently down there reporting on a different project and There are two MAGA candidates trying to unseat James Lankford, who is a senator, and their argument against him is he is anti-Trump. He voted to impeach Trump. He voted to certify the election. He is very anti. He's very disloyal to Trump. And their entire campaign so far has been, we need to prove that we are more loyal to Trump. With this election, I think it was always kind of clear, according to people I talked to on the ground, that Langford was going to win, but the idea that these two MAGA candidates could possibly eat into his lead is suddenly looking more and more tenuous. So you're not even you're not just going to see this in blue states. You might even see this in red states as well. One of the things that people have forgotten about Glenn Youngkin, and I think you're right, he Youngkin strategist after the campaign 
took a victory lap and we're calling him like a once in a generation candidate and all of this stuff. That's not true, but he is a sort of like once in a Trump generation candidate. And, and people forget that, you know, he won the nomination in Virginia with this sort of convoluted convention process, but he did so by sidelining a member of the House of Delegates, sorry, a state senator, Amanda Chase, who's extremely MAGA, presented lots of conspiracy theories, and he still managed to thread the needle and win, and then could pivot in the general election and be the guy wearing the fleece, the guy who looked like your basketball coach dad, um, and the guy who could, you know, gesture towards suburban women, talking about parental rights and education, while sort of, you know, whistling to the Republican base about critical race theory. And, you know, that's a difficult balancing act. And I think you're right that heading into next year with these primaries, you know, how many people like Glenn Youngkin are going to emerge versus how many people like Herschel Walker will emerge. And I think the difference is whether or not these people are endorsed by Trump or attacked by Trump, because as much as Trump was sidelined in 2021, it's certainly going to be true that during the midterms when people are paying attention to elections again, Trump's going to start making endorsements. He's going to start traveling the country and he's going to start showing up in these states and these districts, endorsing people or not. And, you know, candidates and their staffs and their advisors have to figure out a way to have a line into Mar-a-Lago to be like, yo, (laughs) pick my guy or pick my gal. And that still seems to be the dividing line. Yeah, I suppose it depends on where each of these candidates are running. But for some reason, I'm just combining your line of argument with the analysis I was making during a previous post I've written about Trump's meme spec social media website, where it's becoming increasingly clear that if he's not running, he's at least building himself a very cushy exit strategy. So it really does depend whether Trump wants to make his presence known and he wants to be out there once again, preaching to a wider audience, trying to get people to vote for Republican candidates. It would kind of fundamentally require Trump to change a lot of what he has been pushing, aka like a stolen election, yada, yada, yada. But if the if he can get over that and make the entire race about critical race theory, a lot of like culture war issues, he can probably put together some united front. I don't think he'll be able to get over the bitterness of having lost that election. And I don't think that MAGA-style election reform is going to have much appeal outside of the really diehard Trump, let's go harass election officials base. Um, I was also talking to Matt Lewis from the Daily Beast recently, and he was a hardcore never Trumper, but he was actually one of those people celebrating Youngkin's win in Virginia. And the way he put it was never Trumpers and Republicans who voted against Trump can tell the difference between fighting illiberalism on the right and dealing with the existential threat of wokeism on the left. And I thought that was actually a pretty good way of looking at it. Like, they're not dumb. They just have different priorities of what they need to fight at any given moment. I think you are right. I think there is a limitation to the kind of stop the steal election, stop broken elections, stop fraudulent elections thing. I'm not saying that Practically, that fight is over. Obviously, there are Republican officials uh, in battleground states that are trying to change elections for that favor Republicans in the future. But as a salient campaign issue, I do feel like that fades over time. I do think a big lesson from Tuesday, though, is that Republicans running on culture 
can find ways to win. Defund the police went down pretty hard in Minneapolis, where it was born, that slogan. Glenn, uh, Terry McAuliffe ran on Trump, 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 and didn't really talk about the economy very much at all. And then Glenn Youngkin comes in, talks about grocery taxes and talks about education. He wins. He also talked about crime a lot and had an ad with a bunch of sheriffs saying, you know, I'm not going to defund the police. I'm going to defend the police. Perhaps the most shocking thing to me was in Seattle, the city attorney's race in Seattle, a Republican won that position for the first time in 40 years against a defund the police, quote unquote, woke progressive Democrat. That's pretty shocking. And, you know, I do think that defund the police education, whether it you know, apply whether it's appealing to suburban women or appealing to racists. I do think that some of these issues running against progressives as no. these out of touch cultural elitists, like that does have salience and resonance. Yeah. And, and, and just one more one more point on this. Um, you know, th- this uh uh on Monday, um this Democratic ad maker was sort of live tweeting a focus group he's doing with with women who are swing voters, Biden Yunkin voters in Virginia, and he asked you know, which party, he asked his focus group, which party has cultural values closer to yours? And 61% of these focus groupers said Republicans and only 22% said Democrats. On the flip side, Democrats win on the economic argument. And so I do think the fight that we're about to see in 2022 is can Democrats make an economic argument that outweighs the raw, hot button cultural argument that a lot of Republicans are clearly raring to make? They can only make that if Joe Biden oversees some sort of massive turnaround in the economy. Inflation's not good. The weird labor shortage is not good. You can combine that with the fact that, generally speaking, the Democrats are too defined by the defund the police issue or all of these other soft culture targets. But in New York recently, the mayor's race, the guy who won the Democratic primary was very explicitly pro-police. He was a former police captain, Eric Adams, and he was running against Maya Wiley, who did end up getting a fairly significant chunk of voters, but ultimately throughout the ranked choice voting system, it became really clear that New Yorkers wanted someone who was really strong on crime. I think she got knocked out maybe like third or fourth round of balloting. But even in a hyper-Democrat, super-liberal city like New York, defund the police does not fly. So it makes absolute sense in Seattle if you've got the Democrat running, who was not challenged by any other Democrats within the party, is saying, we got to defund the police. The Republican serves as an alternative to that message, not necessarily we like the party. It's just you look at the Democrats and you go, oh, I remember what happened last year in 2020 when a whole bunch of Antifa guys took over several city blocks and created some sort of gross camp. Yeah, no, Ch- Chaz, Chop, whatever, whatever it was known as the deep milk. The Chaz, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. the deep, yeah. Only oat milk and almond milk were allowed. I remember reading something like that. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, but I do think I, I, what I find fascinating is that we saw this flare a decent amount among Democrats after the 2020 elections when Democrats did worse than expected in House, Senate, down ballot races. Abigail Spanberger, also from Virginia. Suburbs of Richmond, also her district includes some more rural parts of the state, complained in a call that was leaked with House leadership, including Nancy Pelosi, saying that socialism and defund the police were killing Democrats in these frontline districts. These are really powerful cultural issues that people just do not like at all. And I I think you're starting to see more of that in the wake of last week's elections. And the most interesting 
thing that popped to me when we're talking about how Democrats are responding to this was a tweet from Connor Lamb, who is a congressman from Pennsylvania, outspoken moderate, and he's running for Senate now. He's running for the Democratic nomination for Senate in Pennsylvania, competitive state. It's going to be a competitive primary. And his tweet says, if you want a senator who runs as a socialist, feeds the GOP attack ads and didn't help with infrastructure, I'm not your guy. That's not how you beat Republicans. I know because I've actually done it. Will again. I am a normal Democrat who supports jobs and wins elections. Hashtag PA Sen. And this was like, you know, you're starting to see the Democrats running against not only Republicans, but also the squad. I mean, like the squad type Democrat, socialist, Democrat, whatever, was pretty buzzy two years ago, four years ago. And I think Democrats, whether they're looking at polling or they're going by their gut, are starting to realize that like, man, this cultural stuff, it does not square with your middle of the road voter. And not only am I going to sort of like gently push back against it, I'm going to scream it. And hopefully that gets me to the nomination. I find that fascinating. It's sort of a problem that the Democrats built themselves. I mean, for all of the, I don't know, buzz that the squad got, the Democrats won on the backs of the white female suburban voters that you know, socialists right now are turning against saying like, oh, God, now you're actually racist for lack of a better term. And I guess to kind of condense the argument to what seems to be the emotional selling point these days. And part of it's a messaging issue, I guess. I a couple months back after the mayor's race, I was talking to a socialist pollster. Yeah, they exist. And even he was admitting that progressives have a really hard time packaging their talking points and that they need to revisit what that looks like. I don't think they'll be able to do it in time for the 22 elections. And I think the fact that the squad has suddenly become defined by a set of slogans is really self is just like awful self-sabotage for them. And it mildly sucks, but I think they just had no idea how to control their own message. I'm sure that members of the squad, you know, AOC, Ayanna Presley, Ilhan Omar, Cory Bush have a devoted fan base now. But I mean, they've they've sent so many mixed messages over the last couple of years since storming into office that, you know, it's just like, what are you guys doing? I mean, AOC voted present on the Iron Dome funding bill. So betraying her progressive base on that, you know, she has said as much as she throws darts at Speaker Pelosi, I don't want to do that job. That's a hard job. She said that in a podcast, and that's sort of curious. And then, you know, they all they all voted against the infrastructure bill this week. You know, one point seven trillion dollars, one of the biggest spending packages in American history that would do things like, you know, fix pipes in cities where their very constituents live. And they voted against it based on this process argument that it's not good enough and we need to hold together and wait for the build back better thing to pass. You know, it just I don't know what they are doing other than throwing darts. And and again, I think a lot of other Democrats are just sort of fed up with the shtick and realize that a lot of their ideas, which were very radical chic, you know, a couple years ago are now just radical and they are making the bet that they don't want (laughs) to be associated with them at all because you can bet that they're going to show up and attack ads. You see this all the time, you know, in swing districts, you see ads from Republicans and outside groups saying, so-and-so Democrat votes with AOC and Nancy Pelosi. And that that is actually somewhat effective. And Democrats are going to have to figure out a way to dance around that next year. Um, I do think the difference, you, you, you made this point, it's going to be really hard to turn this around for Democrats next year. The Build Back Better agenda, I think it's going to pass. 
It's then on Biden and Democrats to communicate what's in it and sell that to the country and hope that that economic message articulated properly is enough to counteract the Republican messaging. But history shows, you know, it's all but guaranteed the party in power is going to lose at least 18 seats in the House, probably some Senate seats. The dividing line between a bloodbath like 2010 and 94 is the president's approval rating. If he's above 50, they can stem some of those losses. They'll still probably lose control of Congress. But, you know, maybe they lose 20 seats and not 40 seats. And that is where that's where the fight is, I think, going to be. You know, things can change. History has proven itself not to be a reliable indicator of the future these days. Uh, But that's the that's that's the that's the mission at hand for Democrats. And also, I just want to throw in the 2018 blue wave was hastened along by the fact that all of these Republicans just like left the party and announced their retirements going into it like. A lot of it was the Republicans saying, I can't do this, bye, and not even thinking about trying to defend their seats, leading to a weaker Republican to come in and the Democrats to throw a lot of money into winning these empty seats that were pretty obviously up for grabs. No one really has that advantage going into this election cycle. So I don't think you're going to see a red wave, but I think you're going to see a pretty staunch red wall or a red advance. I don't know. I'm out of metaphors. <laughs> Fair enough. Go put on your red hat. Baseball. All right, thanks Tina. We'll uh, we'll talk to you next week. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Eric Johnson of lightningpod.fm, our partner, for his support. And thanks, too, to Liz Goff and Ben Landy for their production help. I'm Peter Hamby, and I will see you next week.